2: All right, well, welcome everybody to West Point, Mississippi, home of Mossy Oak Brand Camo and the Gamekeeper studio. And we got a wild crowd today. Everybody's kinda it.
1: amped up today. It's getting that time of year, holiday yeah. season. It's a uh, hunting season more than pouting.
3: More it's called pouting. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so Bobby you're... calls yeah. class at two PM close to the peak of our rut. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Great col- job, Bobby, great uh, job. Uh, and Vandy uh, is the only one hunting. Well, I keep hearing In my it. spot, no yeah. doubt. Because well, <laughs> I think who, even Bobby did <laughs> the bait switch not, on. That's and a good idea. idea. Uh, no. Who's
4: going to answer the phones? Yeah, well, well you know, Vandy they don't can be ring. missing, and it doesn't really change much. Right? <laughs> All right, so Vandy's <laughs> cell number
2: is. Yeah,
3: there you go. <laughs> I don't think it rings much during the run. <laughs> no. Uh,
2: well, see, somebody saw a buck chasing uh, oh, last year. I've seen
3: him for a week, you know. Peace. Behind my house, between here and work, out on the farm. They're, yeah. I mean, Bucks Chase, You've lived,
2: you know. You've lived here all your life. What's the best days? Is it?
3: I, you know, that's a tough question. The last time we did like a health check, they, they had the range between December 5th and January 5th here. So, but I would say the only thing I've always said is like by the 10th, it's for sure on in some form if you like, you know. And I know weather and other things can – You know make movement and movement is everything so i would say peak would be right you know maybe another week from now uh a good doctor will know better than me scientifically but i would also say i tend to see the really big older deer start to amp up seeing pictures and backer trucks and stuff right around christmas as it goes down and i feel like it's because They've had a doe, they've been on a doe, or they've been with a doe almost cons- constantly for maybe two weeks. And all of a sudden, it's not that easy to find one. So they got and they're to worn down them. on top of yeah, that. Yeah. Their senses are a little bit numb, and they just start walking a lot more. Uh, and they're a lot easier to catch one moving then than when they're on a doe. So I don't know. It seems like around Locked Christmas down. is where, no, after lockdown, yeah, after it's lockdown, the post, right? they can't, they, but those old deer. Are most vulnerable to me is like when they finally can't find one. It's
1: like a bell-shaped curve to me, you know. There's this doe population; he's say? breeding through it, and when it starts tapering off, yeah. he's gonna start looking. Kind of like you, Bobby, yeah, back yeah. in the day, you know. But any time to secure that breeding <laughs> opportunity, you know. Any time we're in the breeding season
3: or the rut, though, you've got a shot at being on a terrific hunt, you know. Because I've seen it when it was in the peak, and that's really not that good sometimes. But they'd be like six or seven bucks on one doe and that's chaos and that's that's a fun hunt
4: remember that year yeah. in front of the mossy oak store when that yes. it's like a three-year-old 10 point w- was like i don't know three or four days in a row it just was run, running around out in front of the mossy mm-hmm. oak store i would I say think that was around the 12th
3: or something like yeah, that. yeah and this time I'm of year almost every year you'll get a uh well i saw one in uh old brian food's front yard right here in town the other day going home with like a like a two-year-old, eight or nine point. But you'll have a report of someone ran through a window of a store in downtown or somebody saw one chasing a doe well inside the city limits. As always, this time of year, you get the crazy stories. I've, You know, they crashed through uh, downtown Columbus before, mm-hmm. downtown mm-hmm. Starville, downtown West Point, downtown Aberdeen. I know Phil Barker's father-in-law opened the paint store in the morning and a huge eight-point came crashing out <laughs> over him out the door oh, from, wow. and had torn the, the, the Sherman williams store to shreds, so. It always happens this time of year.
4: Yeah. And according to my windshield rut report, you know, I, I drive 20 <laughs> miles every day to work. The, the roads are full of dead deer. That, right I've now. noticed that. Too. Yes. Yeah. So. Just like flipping a switch.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: A lot there of them are sure.
3: spikes. Well, that'd be part of the discussion we're fixing to have, too. That, that's
4: right. So so
2: today we've got Dr. Steve Damaris from Mississippi State University. Yes, he's a good doctor. Sound the horns. There we, there we go. We got. Sometimes it gets safe.
3: on my nerves, Bobby, but today he's <laughs> worth it. <Yeah.
2: laughs> he, he and Bronson are just, yes. they're both brilliant guys. They've got their own podcast called Dear University that's, that's Full of information. I highly recommend. Well, there's also an old
3: saying my daddy has that's appropriate to both of them, especially him. Is that this ain't their first rodeo? No, no, they've been around been a and long time.
2: So we've got a bunch of good questions to ask about man, managing for a healthy population. How do you know how many deer you need to take off your property? And looking for ways to know that you've got a, a potential problem. So, but let we're going to get to that. I, I got a little. A few business things we need to tidy up first, and one of the first things we always talk about is blood on the biological. Oh yeah, what's everybody seeing?
3: I'm not seeing
4: anything. I'm hearing about a lot of things. Well, you're not a social media guy. <laughs> no,
3: I'm so. not.
2: Yeah, so so I'm socially uh, challenged. Harper May. Now she's friends with David Holly. Killed her first buck the other day. It was oh, a great little picture. I think she's ten years old. Wow! I love. Yeah, seeing oh, yeah, these, yeah, these yeah. 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 So I mean, that's yeah. the kind of stuff we want to bring
4: attention to.
1: Yeah, that, yeah. That's, it, that's
4: really cool. It seems like we get more and more kids every week, and fewer older people because we we enjoy hearing about that more. Yeah, we yeah. pick them out for yeah. sure.
1: Absolutely.
4: The one I picked was a longtime customer of mine, Travis Slezak, up in Pennsylvania. Uh, he calls me and gives me a report on his trees from time to time. Uh, both of his boys got have already gotten a deer this year, and uh, he he posted it on Instagram. One of them's name is Mason, and I I didn't get the other one's name, but congrats to both of them.
1: Yeah, what a good deal. Yep. And then our very own uh, Jody Robinson's son, uh, Henry. Jonas is uh, his dad. They were successful this morning. He's a future little gamekeeper out there kill him. A
3: nice, nice buck this morning. Is that right? So he, he's young, too. He
1: is young, yeah. Henry Robinson. So, I think that's going to get Hayden all fired up for this weekend.
3: I think – I do think the, the boys – Killed a couple of nice deer in that Texas hunt. Oh, that's right. Oh, Jess yeah. And Daniel killed some. But I mean, that's, that's, that's 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 different. That's not yeah. Vato Vato Vatoville Vatoville, Vatoville Vatoville. I have
1: not seen any pictures. So. Yeah, that was a uh, Tim Anderson's mm-hmm.
4: place. You know, we got that's some. These, Tim.
1: We got some little trees
4: from Vatoville that wow. Tim, Tim Anderson gave us the acres sure to. Sure did. A few I years forgot ago, about so. that. Wow. Hopefully, they're going to be in the catalog yeah. soon. That'd be awesome. Vatoville yeah. oaks. How about that?
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, hey, the the, the Henry Robinson. Yeah. So he killed that this morning?
1: I believe so. I got the picture today. So, okay. so Good for I'm, him. So, That's exciting. His yeah, mother no, like, is
2: a really sweet person. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Great family. Great family from here in West Point. Uh, big uh, Jody here work, works here. His, his wife works here, and they're yeah. big, uh, big brand people. So mm-hmm. congratulations to all of them.
2: Yeah, that is good. So, Dudley, uh, to change the subject a little bit, I hear there's some project you've been working on. Do you want to tell us about that?
4: Oh, are we going to talk about that today?
3: We can well well Is we, this
1: another another food plot planning method? Uh who we call it? Yep. Let's see if I can pull there, it up. There's mm. Mac.
2: Okay, Mac, so
1: What are we talking about? Food plots? Well, I
2: don't planning, know. I just heard dudley been new working
4: on the seas of
1: trees. So you know I'm,
4: I'm a big fan of Christmas. Oh uh, yeah. And uh I was in the choir in high school. Oh
1: really? I knew I didn't know this.
4: So uh, we Did been, you sing bass or tenor? Actually, I was a baritone. A baritone.
2: I think he was in a in a boy but band. I'm, I'm all
4: about the Christmas spirit. We've been talking about doing this for years. I've i been wanting to sing at our annual Christmas party, maybe make a, a a quartet or something.
1: Hey, you should get with Tony Marshall and his kids.
4: They just yes. really
3: do
1: it.
4: Anyway, okay. uh, we've been putting together a little fun Christmas album. Awesome.
3: Who? Who yeah. has? Don't you have. break the... Just
2: make What's, them wonder. So are we get, what are we going to get to hear a off of it today I, or something? I, Dudley, I'd plead
3: the fifth. I wouldn't tell Bobby a thing. I'd make him just have to wonder about I, it. I think Did you Max, bring
4: us a sample? I think no. Mac's got a couple of samples for, All right. for my Let's new see.
0: Christmas album. All right, Mac. Here we go. This is Dudley Phelps. No way. Merry Christmas.
4: For the first time ever, you can hear the Dudley Phelps Christmas album with songs like... It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. <laughs> Toys in every store. Is
1: this
0: a done
4: beautiful like- rendition of chestnuts roasting over an open fire. Is this blight resistant but chestnuts. The <laughs> prettiest sight <side laughs> to see. Is the Holly that will be on your own front door. It's
1: kind of got a Sinatra feel to it. And
4: Grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> grandma got run over by a reindeer. Walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa. But as for me and Grandpa, we believe! Man. This is an opportunity you don't want to miss. Available now for pre-order.
3: Oh, my gosh, the iTunes chart yeah, It's going to light it up. Yeah. I, mean, this I is don't know so, what to
4: say. Hopefully, in a couple weeks, you can find this on Spotify, iTunes.
1: I never knew you no, had such a such whatever. a a, vo- a soothing Christmas voice. Yeah. Wow.
3: Did you you call that soothing? Well, you know,
1: it's more more soothing than
2: mine. <laughs> that could keep the pigs out of your plot. It's my, oh, yeah. Is my right? face as
3: <laughs> red
1: as it feels <laughs> like? Yeah, okay, pretty much. Yeah. So so what are those I'm were those blight resistant chestnuts?
3: I'm impressed with your courage. Those were
4: blight resistant chestnuts. Oh no, oh, okay. good. Yeah. good. Your courage,
3: man. Yeah. I'm telling you, yeah. I'm impressed.
4: <laughs> that did take courage. Dr. Scared. Steve, I'm sorry
5: you had to sit there. All <laughs> How can I possibly follow that? Yeah. It's going to be tough.
3: I noticed you kind of pulled his head headphones away from his ears a little yeah. bit. Yes, he did. He did. So,
2: look, Mac, last thing. So let's get back serious here. Oh, man. Have, have you prepared a commercial for us real quick?
1: What are we talking about today, Mac?
2: You know what time it is, Bobby? You know what I do? It's 2.20 uh, looking at my Bertucci.
0: Well, that's, that's what we're going to talk about, is the, the Gamekeeper Edition Vertucci watch. Uh, I mean, it's durable. It's uh, camoufl- camouflage comes in bottom land. I mean, it's got a lot of different styles. It's really good, super reliable, and I absolutely love mine.
2: It's a great watch. I mean, I think we all have one, but they, they are fantastic watches. And, Dr. Steve, we've got you one.
1: There today. You go. As a oh, guest for,
2: for being on the show, driving all the way over here, we've got you a... A Bertucci Gamekeeper watch. I really appreciate
5: so, that, Bobby. Yeah,
2: they're, they're great watches. You'll enjoy wearing it. Thank you, Mac, and we appreciate the people. that You can go see it at Bertucci.com. I love mine. All right, so we got all the business out of the way. Let's, let's get down to some serious stuff with Dr. Steve here and ask you some questions. We mentioned earlier we want to talk about a healthy herd and what a guy needs to do, but we hear, I guess, let's open it up and talk about the – populations across the south and move, and then move north. Because most of the places we hear about having too many deer, but there are places where that might not be the case. Is that right?
5: Well, there are almost always too many deer, but the number of deer is always going to be an issue with one side or the other, and there's two sides to this issue. Our perspective is from the hunter, and my personal perspective is as a biologist. So I think about the, you know, the health of the deer and the health of the habitat more than you know, what I want to see when I go out and hunt. But, but there's always somebody complaining about too many or too few deer. And typically at the end of the hunting season, we hear a lot from hunters say, I didn't see enough deer this year. And, uh, you know, so the number of deer is always an issue. And, and coming up with a decent estimate is really, really challenging. It, it's extremely challenging. So these, you know, state agencies have to come up with numbers, And they do the best job with the available technology that they have and and the databases that they have. But a lot of the times, these numbers you see in in magazines are just kind of ballpark figures. Mm. Mississippi has had an estimate of 1.5 to 2 million deer. That was generated back in the the 1980s from a population reconstruction based on early harvest data. And we still say we have about 1.5 to 2 million deer. And... There's no data that to show that we don't have that many deer, but it's so you know, Toxie can talk about how many deer he sees in his backyard, mm-hmm. yeah. but he doesn't know how many deer is on his farm.
3: And they may—I tell you what—there's a couple of things he alluded to there. One, I would say, is—and and I would love for him to back up everything I say, or not. <laughs> but how many deer you're seeing and what your population is can easily be two different things. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing, I mean, because I know we hunt places that have too many deer, and we still, you know, the thing about it, if you're not careful and you do things in pattern, you know, if you're not careful about how you go about your hunts, those deer, as we always said, they'll pattern you like we into a pattern now. And so you can't just go by just sighting. I think the trail camera probably has more to do with you than anything. But I'd like for him to allude, before I talk about any other, or have questions like, What are some of the signs other than just, like, numbers you see that can be an indicator? That's right. And then I would say one other complication in our part of the world that's just so frustrating is that combine that with the effect of all this unbelievable rise in the number of wild hogs because just browse pressure on stuff at ground level, you can't tell anymore. Not unless you put cameras up. You really can't tell what's destroyed, you know, food sources you really? know I guess the browse lines are a good one
5: that's an absolute that's one of our take it to the bank right methods especially for biologists most state biologists they spend maybe a day on a property or an afternoon on a property at best because they're working with you know hundred 150 properties and they may get out and, and be able to check through the, the property as best they can but looking at the plants they're always there and so we look at the relative browse pressure and Not just of green stuff, because everything that's green in in the summertime and everything that's uh, just woody and and partially green in the wintertime, it's not all deer food. And so we have to understand what we're looking at and the species of plants and and for your region, what species of plants are preferred and which are not. And then you look at the browse pressure on those plants. And a lot of times you don't see the highly preferred forages at all on properties because they've been eaten those highly preferred forages for 50, 60 years Gold. since deer were, you know, restored effectively by our state wildlife agency. Like a strawberry bush, for example. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people never have seen it in the, in the wild. That's classic. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen it two places, one on a, on a really steep creek yeah. bank and then one in, in, in a, an enclosed area. Mm.
1: So if you got a lot of strawberry bush, you don't have very many deer. Mm-hmm.
4: So you're looking at those not
2: those ones that they don't prefer that much
5: and seeing how much of that is there. Well, I hope I don't even get down to the not preferred forages. I'm looking at those, what, what I like to call as important deer forages that may or may not be highly preferred, but they're important to the deer and the health of the deer. And so things like uh, Greenbrier yes, is a really important deer forage because it's it's not green all year round, but it's green much of the year. The leaves are, are almost uh, perennial. And, and so the deer can forage on the leaves and they'll forage on the stems as well. And, so, and it's also widely distributed. So a biologist can just about anywhere in the southeast go out and look at relative browse pressure on Smilax and tell a lot about that property's uh, deer population. Mm. And in most cases I've looked at, You'll see barely leaves, All just right. stems mm-hmm. in at this time of year.
4: I remember seeing some the other day. I'm a I'm a public land hunting nerd and I mean I hunt private too, but that's one of the first things to look for mm-hmm. uh, when you're on public and there's no food plots or anything like that. That's smilex. I good killed stuff. a
3: pretty good deer once and the browse line about head high, maybe a little less, was so just complete nothing was there and then there was just a big ball of it probably 20 by 30 feet above that out from an old dead cedar did it just built up in there and it was all that stuff so i I clipped it where it fell over on the ground and the next day you could see tracks all around they were feeding on that and i killed a deer over it it's pretty cool but they loved it but also could tell you there was too many deer where i was hunting it was Mm in the cotton mill actually
5: okay and I've I've asked a lot of biologists, state biologists, and here in our state of Mississippi, how, of the properties you visit, and they visit literally hundreds, what percentage are in good condition habitat-wise? And they said less than uh, 5% typically. Mm-hmm. When they go out to, to a new property, they're going to be in good condition. Wow.
3: And I mean, to, he, he, double that with it, what kind of habitats there to start with. I mean, you get a place where almost no sunlight hits the ground you got big problems. Now, you could have a fresh cutover or, you know, some land that's actually, I think you would say abandoned land of some type, not necessarily crop land, although some of that can be great forage for a part of the year, or especially not heavily timbered canopy land. But that, you know, select cut, randomly cut, grown-up edge pasture stuff, thats that's got a chance to have some year-round food in it, and it's really, really important. And so the more that you have, the more... You would have stuff survive that you need for your deer, but if you don't have that kind of stuff, because I can, I'm thinking about me. Some places I really, really need to cut some timber, and if I don't hurry up and do it, you know, it's. I mean, the amount of deer is so much more important there than a place with excess foods. What I'm getting at, yeah. And the other thing too, they migrate. As y'all remember, Jordan's famous giant deer he killed with a bow here we had pictures of that deer on daddy's farm Mm -hmm. two and a quarter miles from from there in the summer, all summer long. And then all of a sudden, boom, first of November, he's two and a half miles away on the swamp chestnuts. They'll move for food. And once they know, uh, it's amazing how far they'll move. We have pictures of deer, uh, our one neighbor, who's a great neighbor out there at the cabin. And I don't remember a big deer he's killed. Um, in the last, what, well, 10 years or so, they've showed us that we didn't have pictures at the cabin right there because we've got all that open ground there, and they come for the summer, and we've finally got a lot of clover and stuff there. Mm. And, you know, they be a mile plus away, you know.
2: we all been doing some studies, and there's been a, a couple of bucks that have traveled a really long way. Oh, oh yeah.
5: We, we've documented personalities of deer, we mm-hmm. call it. It's, you know, it's not like a human personality per se, but there's characteristics of, of an animal's behavior. And we see two basic personalities. One is what we call the sedentary buck, and, and he lives in a single home range. He might, there might be two or three miles across that home range, but he's gonna stay in a single home range and then make out, make exploratory sallies or, or uh, short trips during the breeding season looking for does. But he, they're sedentary. They live in one basic place. And then we call the mobile bucks. Another third of the population, literally a third of all the bucks we've studied, are mobile bucks. They live in two or more home ranges. Wow. And one of our extreme cases on steroids. Uh, and you, this hasn't been written up yet much because we just documented it recently, but we have a buck that we captured in the South Mississippi Delta, uh, down Issaquena County, north of Vicksburg. And he spent—we uh, captured him in— um, I can't remember all the details. Uh, but he spent uh, the summer in Louisiana, swam to Louisiana after we collared him, and then uh, came back this past August. So he, he was in Mississippi last winter. Wow. Last spring he left and went to Louisiana, swam the river, and then came back in August. Yeah. This
3: is crazy. He, he was, that's that's
5: we're, a, we're, a big river right there. Oh, too. yeah. a huge Gosh. river. And he went to food. He he was living in a place where there's a lot of soybeans. So
4: do you think it is food that's causing that?
5: Well, there's a, boy well, we could. <laughs> I wouldn't we, know. We yeah. need a whole separate podcast to talk about why deer move, and, and it would be great. I'd be happy to come over and talk Put about that. Put that in the that. notes. Yeah, him, um, <laughs> but the, I will. But I'm thinking he, he spent uh, falls and winters in Mississippi because he knew something about the deer hunters in Louisiana. Hey,
1: that thing. I didn't say it. That's oh, yeah. smart I didn't say
5: it.
4: <laughs> oh, but goodness. we do go and catch all their trout and redfish, so it's justified. They have a few extras. <laughs> they
5: yeah.
3: do. You know, the big picture point of what, what he's saying, though, it's like, I was thinking to myself, how how does how does that deer know? I mean, how did he even know that there was food? I mean, I know what their noses are like, but two miles, three miles away across the river or something, I don't. And the, the answer to a lot of this stuff sometimes is like nature is just amazing. That's right, just mind boggling amazing. The instincts and the survival and the you know all of this stuff we talk about is all on the same plane of like. You know, survival and adaptation and, you know, it's crazy. Plants, animals, everything. It's just amazing to watch nature at work and all of this stuff. is why I love it so
5: much. Yeah, so, and one of the reasons I, I think, and I, we're not supposed to talk about this this time, but movement is characteristically ingrained into deer. They have to move. Mm-hmm. And not all the deer need to be these long-range mobile bucks because any time a deer is out across the landscape, he's at risk. And so deer generally want to avoid risk, which goes back to Toxie's comment mm-hmm. about, you know, you can overhunt and not see deer. And Dudley's talked about it earlier, too. And uh, so a, de- a percentage of deer need to move on the, for the basis and the benefit of the population and the species. Right. And they need to know what's out there so that when things get tough, they can go and, and get get what they need. And so that's why only a third, I think, of these mobile bucks are mobile because they're at risk. And so the population doesn't need to invest in all of the deer doing this. But some somewhat less uh, intelligent ones maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, just more risk takers. Right. The, the people that are on cutting edge, and, and absolutely forget the, the part about uh, the intelligent people. Th- think about, back about, you know, Toxie, when you started this company, you were a risk taker. Yeah. And and, and you <laughs> decided to take a risk and look what's happened. Yeah. And, and so risk is risky, and, and there's oftentimes uh, negative effects from it. And, and boy, I'm rambling into no, this. Go ahead. Okay, Andy,
1: I, real saying, I, mean, I
3: like to interject also. He talked about me being a risk taker, but it helps a lot to be real naive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. To so, his previous so, comments. Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah, so you're saying a third of them are
5: sedentary. A third of them are... Two-thirds are sedentary. One-third are mobile. Okay. So, and, right. and
1: help us understand, sedentary is living within a mile, and then a mobile is living within three or four miles? Totally right.
5: different home ranges. They mm-hmm. have seasonal home ranges. A mobile buck will live like the one in, in uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. A completely
1: separate place.
5: Uh, they live in a totally separate place, and mm-hmm. so it can be separated by a couple of miles or you know an entire Mississippi River. We had another buck in, in Yazoo in, in Madison County. Uh, he lived in uh, Madison County, and in August we, we collared him in August, and then the very next day he left. And we thought, oh man, we we affected his person. You know, we we made him nervous. He he left. He didn't like what we did to him. He moved 13 miles away and spent the fall and winter. And then in the following February he came back.
1: 13 miles.
5: 13 miles. And and then he spent again six months where we had captured him. The following August, he left again within a wow. week of the same time. bet you collared
4: him. Yeah, I've seen Did a bunch of trail cam pictures of that deer. That's yeah,
5: extremely different. different He's amazing. Yeah, and back to you know Toxie talking about you know they're so cool and and the ecology of the animals. I mean,
3: yeah, I remember the early early studies on uh, hens and radioed hens and whatever when I grew up down there around all that and. I, uh, biologist from Auburn was doing those early studies. And there was a hen went seven miles every spring and nested within 50 yards of the exact same spot. And then came back and to the exact same place every winter too. Wow. And I don't know why that was the case or why she traveled there. I was going to ask you, are there any deer? I know you say the, the sedentary versus the movers. Are there any deer that are almost like um, hogs, coats, don't have a home? They just kind of roam and roam and roam, or do they all seem to have a home device as they circulate back around to where they were? Where is home?
5: They all have highly used areas. Right. Okay. Yeah, they're all going to be, and even those sedentary bucks, they're going to be shifting, like you were talking about, you know, shifting right. associated with food supply. Mm-hmm. They're in the soybean fields until they're harvested, and then they're going into the oaks, the white oaks, and and then later the red oaks, and yes, we'll
3: we'll go down this rabbit hole and not even talk about your topic, Bobby. But the one other thing uh is true they they've uh, determined that a year and a half old deer that is uh comes into the you know the breeding cycle and mom goes in he there's a repellent that goes on that he will get out of the country where his mom is it's almost like a prevent inbreeding type of thing with deer that's a, so in a lot of cases they'll they'll move to a whole nother area to get away from mom just does she
2: does she run them off?
5: Or, or well, there's, there's two times when deer disperse. One is right around one year of age, about eleven months of age, when that doe is in her late stage of gestation, and and she doesn't want to mess with that.
3: Pony, yeah, that young
5: buck from the last, quit
3: bothering me. All right,
5: <laughs> you go to your room, and she just kicks her, kicks that fawn out of her family unit, and he'll hang around. And a lot of times, early in the deer deer season, you'll see. A doe and a family unit, doe and a fawn, and maybe a yearling doe from the previous year on a food plot, and this yearling buck, kind of a hundred yards away, kind of right. just there by himself, and and that could be her mm. fawn from the previous year. So uh, he he got kicked away, but he didn't get all the way. But there's usually this burst of dispersal, and it's what we call as a dispersal is a one time movement away from where they were bred, where they where the fawn, and then uh, the second pulse of dispersals in the fall and that's when they're getting kicked around by their older bucks and and they have a second dispersal Hmm.
2: Hmm. interesting it's it is fascinating so when you come back and when we hear about this habitat being in such poor condition is the big challenge to shoot enough to harvest enough does harvest enough total deer off your property is that what we need to be doing
5: it's really complex bobby and it's a lot of factors. It's the number of mouths eating the food, but it's also the amount of food being produced. Yes. And, and if you don't have canopy open on in your forests, you're not going to have sunshine on the ground. If you don't have sunshine reaching the ground, you're not going to produce food. Yep.
4: So, for example, my, my farm in central Mississippi, we can't get anybody to thin the pines. And so my habitat has deteriorated tremendously Yes, and so it's it's even more important to take more mouths out because there's no food around. There's there's little cover too.
5: Timber but. market is a really limitation to deer management right but, now. But I'm, when I'm, I'm able like
4: to get that thinned and and I start having more food around, I I can probably back off a little bit and uh, see more deer when I'm hunting.
5: Well, right. I was talking with a, a landowner in, in uh, bottomland hardwoods along the Mississippi River uh, this past fall and. And they were complaining, well, we're only going to get $100 an acre on this timber harvest we've got going. And I said, at least you're not having to pay them to harvest your timber. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're interested in deer management, and if you don't get sunlight on the ground, you're not going to have forage. Right. So it's a cost of doing business right now. You you have to take what you can get for your timber just to get it on the ground and, and open some sunlight.
0: Hey, this is Mac. Checking game cameras is one of the many pleasures I get from gamekeeping. OnX helps keep track of my camera locations to be sure I'm getting the information that I need to make the best decisions for the wildlife. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your Onex subscriptions. Know where you stand. So is there any formulas that,
2: uh, that a guy can apply to his own personal property to know how many deer he needs to harvest?
5: Hey, no, you know that's, I, 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 that's a
1: tough one. Yeah, yeah that's
2: a tough one. But I'm tr- I, 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 I know I'm asking a kind of a dumb question, but I'm just trying to see if there's some some way we can help, help our listeners. Rule of
1: thumb. Yeah.
2: Well,
5: there's a couple of rules of thumb that apply in many areas of deer, bo- of many locations where deer are managed. One of them is the 30 percent rule. And if you have good quality habitat, you should be harvesting 30 percent of your doe population every year just to keep it at a given level. Mm -hmm. Not trying to decrease the number of deer, just just to keep it in a healthy condition at a a reasonable density. When you think about the number, that's a lot of of deer. I mean, I like that. (laughs) It's a lot of work.
3: Well, think about someone who has failed to do that for like 10 years. Yeah. And... Then you've got something where you you might might need to get 60 or 70 percent of them or something. I mean, who knows? It's tough, it's really tough. And then, how big is your place? Can you really make an impact if you have 200 acres to hunt and a couple of neighbors you're surrounded by 2,000 that won't shoot their deer? I mean, right. So, I mean, I think the word I get out to people is like, uh, harvest is many. I mean, unless you just don't have any, you don't think you have any deer, and you don't have any issues with a, you know, harvest. Uh, I, I mean, the native food when you plant a food plot is tall and lush, and they don't you don't see a lot of deer in. I mean, you have you have to know if you spend much time on it if you've got very few deer. But in, unless you have very few deer, uh, harvest those. And I don't live by this. I need to listen to myself too. Harvest them. Harvest them earlier in the deer season and shoot as many mature does as you can, really, honestly. Or, you know, maybe there's a buck that's gotten old and he still only has like six points or whatever you want to do, call it. But taking mouths off is the responsible thing to do for the health of the deer. There's just no question about it.
4: And Mm -hmm. we all love to eat venison. Yes, absolutely. But we're all so busy, it it can be hard to get out in the woods and and accomplish
1: that some some years. And it is a lot of work, especially when you're doing it on that scale.
3: Yeah. You know, we've done it. I, I would encourage people to, um, it, it also greatly can decrease the quality of your hunting for, you know, mm-hmm. a trophy and all that of mature buck. Sure. If you're just nipping at the deer all the time, I would say that's another big thing. It's like, not just what you harvest, but how. Um, so I've known people that uh, had commercial lodges and had tough time and they, Banned anybody harvesting does populations in the afternoon at a food source, well, like, a, you know, greenfield and stuff. They mm-hmm. no afternoon that you do it in the morning, you do it off in the, you know, on a trail or in the woods or in a thicket, and that's fine. And they said within a year they started seeing a lot more deer and their hunters saw a lot more deer. So I think there's a, that's another thing you might could uh, shed some light on too is that there's a way to go about it. I would personally encourage you to get if you really know you've got a problem is go ahead and, and engage like a bunch of friends that you trust. And like when deer season opens, hit them up one time, boom, you know, have a plan on it. to kill 10, eight, six, 20, whatever. And people, you know, that you trust all that and hit them, boom, boom, a day or two and, and do most of your damage right away and not just nip at them all the time. I Makes think the quality of hunting will be much better, and
4: I'm, I'm sure there's different opinions on that. You know, we used to uh, try to take them out real early. Absolutely, uh, some people like to wait till that you know last few weeks of the season when the rut's over and do. I mean, I guess, and Steve, I'm um, I don't know if there's a best way, but uh, I, I think just getting them out is good. Uh, yeah. Yeah,
5: that we, that's, that's why you don't wait to um, till the last do minute. the heavy work. Until the end of the day, you try to get that stuff done in the early, early morning when you're pumped up and you got right. energy. Yeah. You know, late, you know, Mississippi, late January, you're not, gonna, you don't feel like going out and hunting. Yeah. Well, Plus, and, you end up tracking stuff at night
3: into the wee hours sometimes.
4: Yeah, yeah we uh, that you were talking about how outfitters have a have a trick. Uh, mm-hmm. At my farm, uh, one one rule we frequently do is. We don't let people shoot does in our bigger destination food plots.
3: Absolutely.
4: Uh we, we do it in the like you said, the, the first week of the season and then we wait until the rut's over. But you can shoot does anywhere else and it and it helps encourage people to back off from the fields yes, anyway. Absolutely. Hunt trails, hunt the woods, hunt the perimeters of your property to accomplish that without boogering your place up.
5: As Some bad. states have really effective uh, DMAP regulations where, if you're working with a state DMAP biologist and you have DMAP tags, and and say, uh, I think it's Arkansas that has a, a law, a regulation that if you have DMAP tags for does, you can use any weapon as early as the the archery season. Yes, just for that targeted job, and so they have all of their members come out the first weekend in, in doe, uh, archery season, and, and they s- slaughter the does, and they get it done, and and then the during the breeding season, they're hunting bucks, not That's does.
3: The, I mean, you know, every state's different. I'm not trying to get into politics, but that would be ideal for the health of the herd. It, it, and honestly, it's going to, I've witnessed this because I've been many years of messing with them, you will see an incredible difference in the rut in the buck movement. Yep. that year if you take them out before that, no question about it. Fewer, fewer ladies. Oh, all. it's amazing <laughs>
5: difference it makes. And some guys will argue. You know, I, I want to wait, and I want all the does on my place, Mm-mm. so that everybody else's bucks will come here. But that's the that's not the effective way. To, the better way is to. Get them off early when you can, and then enjoy the the breeding season. You know
3: what? That guy can take all his does out the beginning of the season. He can accomplish the same thing. If he has a bunch of quality food plots, he's going to just have a whole – some more back in there, and he's he's reduced the population. If he's got those quality food sources, Mm -hmm. you know, better than your neighbors and whatnot, you're going to have the does in there during the rut too. So, I mean, that's not a good excuse. No.
2: Yeah. So uh, is is there – when you're when you're look, if you've got multiple does out in the field, is there one that you're looking at to go well? That's going to be the one I take out this afternoon. Is there some criteria you look look for?
5: Yeah. Uh, well, let me talk about what hunters look for, and and a lot of times hunters say, "Well, I'm going to shoot the old barren doe." Well, just because she doesn't have fawns with her in the food plot doesn't mean she didn't produce fawns. She may just lost them. And so what you end up doing is biasing the sample that the biologists are going to use to look at lactation rate. And and that's a real problem with limiting uh, condition evaluation back to the health topic. Yeah. And and we want to look at recruitment rate. And one of the ways we do that is looking at lactation rate. And so lactation rate is a sample of a random sample, hopefully, of, of does and whether or not they're lactating when they're harvested. So we don't want that doe to be harvested. And they also look for the old doe instead of the younger doe. Well, the older doe is probably their best mama. So I I say shoot the younger does, the yearling doe or the two-year-old doe, that's not as good of a mother and leave the older does. But my my friend Carl Miller from University of Georgia used to say, you know, if it's brown, it goes down when it comes to doe harvest. Mm -hmm. You know, the main thing is to get does off the ground, uh, you know, on the ground, off of the population. Don't
4: overthink it.
5: Yep. So let's
3: add one more layer of complexity. (laughs) Coyotes, because... And if I remember right, our buddies at Bent Creek engaged Auburn to study. And they found they were losing, this was about 10 years ago, they were losing 70% of their fawns to coats. They'd gotten so bad. Mm-hmm. Of course, they have a vast area. It's all timber company land, a lot of clear cuts, a lot of thickets. They never really shot any predators down there and all. And they, they did after that. And they saw a, a difference. But they were losing 70% of their fawns to coyotes. So when you add that in, then there's another factor. I, I have had places, and my personal opinion is I'm kind of like Glenn Garner, who I think highly, highly, highly of on sure. deer management especially. He said I'd rather – he takes out all the coats he can. I'd rather make the choice on what we take out and not the coats. because uh, there's very little that will push your deer movement down like having a high coyote population. I mean, they just almost don't want to move anymore too. So, But – Having said that, they can really knock your population back, uh, and you can not even be shooting any deer, and you still don't have any population increase. They're getting so many of them. So, mm-hmm. what have you seen on that within the southeast?
5: Well, Lanny, what's what's our favorite word, Bronson and I, when we when we talk about stuff?
3: Uh, usually, it's
5: a banana pudding. <laughs> It, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> now, predator control is so dependent on local circumstances. We looked at a study of, um, goodness, um, 15 properties in Alabama and Mississippi, maybe even been up to 20. Uh, we, we documented predator populations and fawn recruitment on all these properties two different years. And if you looked at all of those properties, there was absolutely no relationship between the number of predators on the, popul- on the property in the summertime and the fawn recruitment. Absolutely none. Zero percent predictive or, or relationship. Wow. Now, if you pick, if you cherry pick, and, and oftentimes we, we hear a lot about, you know, the high mortality rates from coyotes on a particular place. Well, that's like cherry picking data. And oftentimes, they spend money where there's a problem, and then they find the problem. But if you look at properties across the states of Mississippi and Alabama like we did, we found some that, yes, there was a clear relationship between a number of predators in the summertime and lower fawn crop. But we could also cherry-pick the same number of properties and Different properties, but the same number. We'd have just as many where there would actually be a positive relationship between the number of predators in the summer and the fawn recruitment.
3: Mm. So, do so you think it would have to do mm, with habitat? Like, maybe. I, well, I mean, what else is available to eat? Is a fawn at the top of the food chain, or I, I'm I'm just guessing. Right. There's lots and lots of like rabbits and stuff like that, rats and all that kind of stuff. They don't get nearly as many fawns. Probably takes a little more work, except when they first drop. And so it probably has a lot mm-hmm. of, just like anything else, what deer eat are based on preferences and what's available and
5: coats probably too. Yeah. Coyotes are lazy.
1: when they spend as little as possible, Yeah. as much as
5: possible. Yeah. yeah. So the better quality habitat, I heard somebody said habitat, mm-hmm. and, and that's what it comes down to in my opinion, is that if you have good quality fawning habitat across your property, Same as turkeys. And, and, and not just on little strips along SMZs, and, you know, an SMZ can have really great fawning habitat. But if that's the only habitat on your property, guess where the coyotes are going to go? And they got this right. narrow range yeah. of habitat to, to zip back and forth and find your fawns. So spread your fawn habitat, which is low-brushy, uh, you know, old-field-type habitat where you, you know, maybe burn every two or three, four years in these old fields. That's great fawning habitat. Distribute that across your property, and you will not have as much sensitivity to predator populations.
2: That's interesting, Landy, You kept furrow in your brow. Did you have a question?
1: No, I'm just listening, taking it all in, man. <laughs> it's it's pretty Every time, you know, you, the, the the great thing about what we do is we never know, you know. And you know. It,
4: yeah, it just gets more and more confusing. Yeah, we're talking about the
1: home ranges and everything.
4: You know, else. you you make your habitat thicker for you make more bedding cover on your property. You're also making it harder to hunt your deer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a it's all a double edged sword in this management. It's Like thing. we're all working towards this perfect balance. <laughs> yeah. So
2: we hear so many guys say, and we're we're trying to correct this thought process in in hunters' minds, but a lot of them will say, well, if I don't kill this deer, my neighbor's going to kill it. And Hank Parker said it best on here. He said, hey, I I can't control what my neighbor does, but I can control what I do. And if I don't kill him, he's going to survive another night, and maybe he'll survive the season. But I'm, I'm also hearing guys say, well, you know what, my, my I'm gonna let my neighbors shoot the doves, and then I'm just gonna leave, le, le, you know, let my place be quiet, and the neighbors shoot the doves. But I don't think that's the right thing to do either. Mm-hmm. And we've all
3: we got to – Well, I think the bigger your place, the more responsibility you have too. Because I mean, if a guy's only got 20 acres or whatever, he can probably have that attitude. But if you've got a bigger, the bigger your place, then I think the more responsibility you have to adhere to. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
2: So, how do we get to the point where a guy knows how many he needs to shoot on his property? I, I kind of keep coming, uh, try to come back to that. Is there? Is it just
5: shoot as many as you legally can? Well, before I answer that, Bobby, I want to follow up so that somebody doesn't misunderstand my my thirty percent rule from early earlier. You know, that's a general rule that applies to a lot of places. But there are areas in Mississippi and all through the southeast and particularly in the lower coastal plain where the soil quality is relatively low and the forage quality is relatively low because of past historical management. And you can't just go down there and start shooting a bunch of does and shoot 30% of the does every year and and, uh, think you're going to do good. and, And eventually you'll end up with just fewer deer. And so we never say always and we always say it depends mm-hmm. uh, it depends on where you are and the habitat and the and the quality of the circumstances the carrying capacity neighbors uh, you know what they're doing it, it really what
3: matters I, what I take from what he's telling us is that um, you know uh, it's really not a regional issue or a state issue as much as each individual local property owner. And it could be, you know, sub regions like parts of different parts of the County, whatever. But what he would, I gather from what he's telling me is that what's important is not that you try to be perfect about this and have a exact count and cut 30% back or whatever is that you have a plan. You do the best you can with the available knowledge you have, listening to all the stuff we provide and others, but you have your own plan. And if your plan is, okay, I've made up my mind. We're going to kill eight. Then go do it. Have a plan and do it. That's what's most important. Nobody's going to be perfect. And honestly, you know, it'd help you a lot to bring in some consultants and biologists. It might, it would, but that's not going to be perfect either. Don't try to be perfect. And you know, you know, what else could help
4: is uh, to communicate with your neighbors. Absolutely. You know, you hear about the co-ops, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, get to know your neighbors and be buddies with them and trade ideas and, Uh, You know, kind of meet as a group and and discuss what what you think you need to do as a whole.
3: Yeah, even in hunting clubs, it would be fun to collectively agree on a plan and then as a group execute it. Hey, you know what? We need to kill 20 does on the club this year. And you you got together and you're working together and you're pulling together, you all, you know, and you agree to that. And maybe some of the members don't like shoot does, that's fine. But as a group, you've agreed to what you're going to do. And again, make a plan to the best of your ability, whatever that is, and then go do it and, and have a good time that year. Don't waste a year or your life grubbing over <laughs> the privilege you get to go hunt and be a part of that. Just go have it. fun doing it.
1: I think it makes a lot of sense what y'all are talking about, you know, scheduling some time early in the season. You know, I shoot those every chance I get. So. <laughs> early and often. <laughs> early and often. Yes. That's right. Uh, and I know that's not necessarily the best way to do it. And it does have a drastic effect on, on rut hunting for me because, you know, I, it, it just does. So, uh, scheduling some time, a dedicated weekend, or two, or three, uh, and doing it every year. Uh, like you're saying, I just reinforce what you're saying, Toxie. You know, uh, plan your work, work your plan. Uh, before you know it, three or four seasons are going to be going by, and you're going to see a drastic effect on what's going on in your place.
5: Uh, and, Bobby, back to your earlier question, how does a guy know? Well, b- monitoring the habitat is one of the ways we we do this, Looking, letting the plants tell us, you know, what's there and how how much pressure. We also use uh, measurements on harvested deer, and and we look at the condition of the animals. The the first is looking at the condition of the habitat, and we also look at the condition of the animal population and let them tell us how good a diet they have. And uh, we do that through body weights, Uh, antler measurements, Uh, we look at reproductive rates and lactation success and and body weights of does. Uh, I love uh, looking at yearling doe weights. It's a really good indicator because it's the youngest group of animals, and it's a relatively random sample, and uh, it tells you what's happened in the last two years of the deer's life.
3: Uh, Another good reason to kill some does and some deer at the beginning of archery even, right there, because I've always for all of my life had deer in the worst condition around here then, because even if you have a place in poor condition, they'll fatten up with, we have a lot of oak trees and a lot of mast, and a lot of stuff comes on as fall progresses at least. And you can get to Christmas and kill them and they're in great, well, a lot better shape and Mm -hmm. it wouldn't actually tell you you've got a problem. So I've always paid attention a lot to the trail cam pictures I get in late summer. And the deer we harvest at the very beginning of our shoes, October first here, that tells me more than the deer we kill. By the time Christmas or so rolls around, they're in a much better condition around here and much more body fat mm-hmm. than they are. That late summer stress and to say that's what that's when deer are finishing out their antlers too. So, you know, if you're worried about that kind of quality, yeah. pay attention to what's going on with those trail count pictures and you can you can really say I'm a... The state biologist, his name escapes me, always said, be sure to save not just your buck pictures when you go back to archive stuff, but save some up-close daytime doe pictures of a bunch of different does and go back and look at them really close on your trail camera. That trail camera might be the best tool you have. And, you know, what, what kind of shape your deer in.
2: It's interesting to, to in, the, in August to see those does, and they may have one or two babies, but they look poor. Oh, they
3: look terrible. And you can see so it on trucking pictures. People. And I, I know the properties we have that are totally timber properties and totally dependent on whatever we do with food plots and then the ones that aren't. And you can see a dramatic difference mm-hmm. in that late summer, first of both season, uh, health.
5: Bobby, I'm going to jump in and give you a, a hard and fast general rule of thumb for how many does and, and should you be harvesting. Okay. Nope. Yeah, it's not as many as you should. <laughs> uh, that's exactly, I like I, this guy. You know yeah. what? <laughs>
1: hey,
5: he is
3: exactly, precisely, scientifically dead on. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, especially here.
5: It's the best managed properties from <laughs> a habitat standpoint and uh, from a population standpoint with the, the right number of deer on the property. The best management prop, managed properties are the least fun to hunt on because you're not going to see any deer. Not as many. Very few.
3: Mm. Absolutely. And guess, and guess what? Worst case scenario, you kill too many does. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a better rut the next year, and you're going to bounce back with healthier deer really, really quick. Conversely, if you go and don't kill enough deer, and don't kill enough deer, and don't kill enough deer, you're doing almost irreparable damage to your deer herd. If you're and your habitat, you know, wiping out the stuff they need. So, yeah, err on the side. Yeah. If in doubt, you had not killed enough.
2: It's amazing how many deer we have now. It is, it it is. absolutely. It, it's they, they're just a great story of conservation of how they.
3: Well, I'm. I hear stories from the state where they're worried about overharvest or something in some places. But if our officials tell us in certain regions that we've over-harvested or whatever, maybe we should listen to them. But unless they pull the reins back, we need to be doing exactly what he's telling us right now.
2: So uh, one thing I'd like to point out is I I follow a couple of sites on Facebook, and you'll see where states are implementing apps and wanting you to tell what you harvested and whatnot, including our state here. And I'm seeing so many people saying, I'm not telling them. They don't need to – and that – we don't need to behave like that. No. We need to provide this yes. much information so guys, really smart people like you and Bronson can analyze this data and, and help the state make the best decisions possible. Absolutely.
5: We we have, we have are the research arm for our state wildlife agency. Mm-hmm. Mississippi State is for Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And actually a cooperative research project back in the, the late 70s actually developed the Deer Management Assistance Program here in Mississippi that – you hear about throughout the southeast and and much of the north. The the Deer Management Assistance Program started just down the road here at Mississippi State as, as a research project, and it is the most successful management tool for deer populations now,
2: Mac, you ought to hit the horns just for that.
5: <laughs> no that's doubt a, about
1: that's it. That's a big deal. <laughs> that there. is a big deal. And let me tell wake you, wake Mac. It's Christmas time, and when DMAP <laughs> hit and you could get doe tags, that was yeah. like Christmas to me as a kid. I'm like, man, it's on. <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, so I hear people talk all the time that are covertly say, "Hey, they know everything I do now. Government knows where I'm at, and my, you know, they listen in on my family conversations, and all. Right. I don't say that I too I know, much. but I mean, we all, I've, I've had some eerie things happen. But I do know, I say that I don't know 100% anything, but I believe, <laughs> I've been told by the electronically advanced, and I'm challenged, that if, you, if you're worried about them knowing where you are when you tag, you're supposed to not move a deer or a turkey now until you log it in, then turn your, be sure to go through your settings and turn your location services off. And so I'm told by the technology people no one nothing can trace your location if you turn that off now maybe i'm wrong but if you're worried about it it's not a good excuse to not turn in the data we need that data we have to yeah. have it and we can only no, it's, it's so like important. it's just like saying i'm not going to vote what does my one vote matter well, we all know how important that is That's right so this is just as important as your yes. vote right here yeah. and don't think you're not Plus, not to mention, it's illegal. So everybody needs to give them that data. It's an incredible tool mm-hmm. that for the state and keep your own keep your own data. That's yeah. one of the funnest
1: things. No um, bad, you it. know,
4: I have an iPhone yeah. that has notes. You know, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm kind of technologically. Uh, I have problems with that myself. Like, I'm not even good at spreadsheets. You're good at singing, though, don't but, yeah, Exactly. No you but can you can you write too. it down. Ba, ba, ba,
3: ba. Uh,
4: <laughs> you know, put it by the skin and rack uh, yeah. and write down the weights. Get a scale, mm-hmm. they're cheap. So, let me ask this question.
2: Y'all are making the, a best educated determination of what you think the state's population is, and then they they set the the limits or how many deer, are are y'all trying to harvest a a certain percentage of that
5: number? If you have an estimate for a property, a specific number, then you can look at harvesting a percentage of it. Most properties don't know how many deer they have.
2: Well, I'm, I'm asking yeah. just generally about the state of Mississippi. Y'all, you all you were said earlier, oh. y'all think there's 1.5 million, but you don't, you don't know exactly. And then when you get the harvest data that does come in, are, are, you, are you guys saying, oh, wait, we want to harvest 10%? Or is there some kind of a number there?
5: No, the state doesn't, doesn't work that way. They're not able to work that way because we still don't know how many deer or are really harvesting. harvested in yeah. the state of Mississippi. Um, so – what they do is they try to maximize the recreational opportunity for hunters. And I'm not a state biologist, but I'm, my understanding is they try to maximize recreational opportunities for hunters and management opportunity for the landowners. And together, if, you, if you're if you doing that then and getting data, then you can manage your, your population effectively. If you don't want to do any part of that, then that's fine. But the state is all about helping you do what you want to do for your deer population.
3: Absolutely. I think it's, he's, he made a point. It's, it's almost impossible to know how many deer you have on your place. I mean, unless you have a really small place, and it probably doesn't matter as much. Sure. So what I got from that also for people, so it kind of just makes sometimes too much data will also make people kind of give up because I don't know. How am I supposed to know? You know? So what I would say is, and that's what I would like to ask him, too, is like, so let's just say it this way. And I like the way you generalize stuff. If you know, if you feel or you know you have more than you need or more than is healthy, then you just about can't shoot too many. That's the safe thing. So the question would be, what are some indicators? And he talked about a couple, but I want to go over one more time and list what his top indicators of I have too many is. Yes. Because instead of worried about I, why do I do anything, I don't have the specific numbers, I can't keep up with that exactly, I, you know, how do I know from trail camera pictures how many were the same deer, all that stuff, If you, you know your place. If you spend the time on it, you listen to the other people that hunt on it. You know, if you have too many, you'll know that. But what are those indicators? And again, if you have those indicators, you have these things happening. You need, you can't, you just about can't take too many miles off of it. So, what are those main indicators people will look for with everything we've talked about? You know,
5: so body weights are really important, but you can't just have a, a clump of right body weights. You have to know the age of the deer because right. you know I weigh a little bit more now. Right. At my mature age, (laughs) and you need keep data from the past years too. So
3: you (laughs) absolutely, you know, and and that's
5: the key. With oftentimes we don't have ever have enough data from a particular property, but you monitor trends in the data. Absolutely, you might have just you know half a dozen uh, body weights on yearling does, like I was talking about. But keep keep that value and monitor it over over many years, and you look for the general patterns that going up meaning things are getting better, or is it going down? And if it's going down, then you're not doing something, and you right. need to fix whatever you're not doing.
3: Yeah. Could you have uh, – also, could you – I just thought of one that I think people could use as part of the equation is if you – your sightings, and I realize bucks don't always show themselves, but if your sightings of number of does versus bucks, and especially your trail cam pictures, I mean, what's a healthy number? If you're seeing – you know if you're paying attention to when people hunt or you're paying attention to trail cameras and you do the best you can i know it's not exact science and you feel like you've got about five or eight does per buck you know regardless of the overall uh population you need to harvest a bunch of does sure right so what's that number would be healthy i mean i know there's i mean even one to one might be but would you say
5: two to one is a well the sex ratio you want to target is totally a Dependent on your your management goals, right? And if you're in a you know a trophy management type program, a one to one is the kind of classic wow. sex
3: ratio. So that could give you a target to shoot for and harvest, even without population data, just sure. by you know how many bucks per dose you are keeping up with.
5: Yeah, and and you know you don't want to base that on harvest because uh, that harvest is going to be susceptible to, to biases. Right. But if you use your early Archery season. Archery hunters are, are tend to be some of the better—I don't know if I want to say better hunters—but they're. Oh, go they're, ahead. They're, they're, they're more observant, and they get they're closer to the deer by the nature of the beast, yeah. and so they're seeing much does more. and fawns and bucks prior to the big heavy gun hunting activity. So the deer haven't responded as much. So you have a, a much more valid estimate of sex ratio and fawn recruitment early in the hunting season before the does are starting to. uh normally uh they're gonna uh the fawns are gonna get off the does and they're gonna dry up so a late hunting season uh doe we don't care whether she was lactating or not we don't use the data past early december Hmm. uh, because they're gonna naturally be weaning
4: yeah right What what about uh one you know some observational stuff uh we use exclusion cages in our food plots. Yep. Uh, that, that could be a good
1: yep. indicator
4: indicator sure. of health. Uh, if you're planting something that's typically not the most preferred, like so in the case of brassicas, turnips are probably the least preferred out of them. If, if you plant a field of turnips and they're eating them down before November hits, Boy. then you probably... Got a pretty high duty. Yeah, the
3: only the only thing I'd add if someone's going to go buy an utilization cage, they should try to put unless they only have one field.
4: Yeah, I guess. But society. they should they should
3: they should diversify it out to several of their fields and different soils, different stuff they planted to get a feel for it. Because if you just put it on your one most lush field, sure. that may be what they're hammering. It might not have grown as good. So, I, but yeah, that could be really that's pretty telling. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's actually shocking sometimes. You know, it was
2: interesting to me early in this conversation. You mentioned that a lot of the most preferred native brows you don't even see anymore. Mm-hmm. And boy, you know, some that if there's a way to reestablish that on a property in a cage, so that at least you're giving that property a chance it to be to- a
3: big cage in a lot of cages, though. It's, you know, you just gotta get return for your effort. You know, yeah. that's why we had these conversations about these in the right place, in the right condition. These burns, you know, disturbing soils. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, some of these plants can lay or seed or part of a root can lay in the soil for two, five, ten years Absolutely. and be disturbed and brought back to life. So, you know, that's another thing we can do is, you know, we talked about it some. It's sure. Disturbing the soil, control burns, you know. I love how folks are starting to learn more about yep. uh, you don't have to burn
4: only in February yeah. every year. Absolutely. You know, I, that's... that's right. At Marcus, uh, how do you
2: say his last Lashley. name? Lashley. Yeah, I mean he's that's he's on a mission to teach that doctor disturbance.
3: Yeah, he's, it's a great name. Yeah,
2: I follow him. I enjoy. He's got some great stuff, and I follow you guys. Y'all, y'all put out some great stuff. So, yep. you know, and I, I want to make sure before I forget though. But if you're a young person. And you're thinking about going to college and studying wildlife, uh, you what,
3: need to be a bulldog, uh, yes, State
2: right. has got some good stuff on. going on. You guys, come
3: on, Mike. I, I, I just time to be a bulldog,
2: always yeah. hear good things about what's going on over we there. We appreciate that, Bobby. Thank yeah. You. Yeah.
1: It's a heck of a resource for us, too. I'll tell you that right
2: now. And Lanny's over at those deer pens all the time with his its nose
1: mashed Look, up against the fence. The I'm, first place I went in Starville, Mississippi, was the deer pens,
3: <laughs> so I'm prejudiced. And it's absolutely the place, and if you are thinking about that. (laughs) But I'm admittedly biased. I mean, my mom, my dad, everybody in my family went to state. But I'll also use the Joe Namath. I know you're not an Alabama fan, but I'll use the Joe Namath rule. He made it famous by saying, he said, hey – if it's true, you ain't bragging. Did Joe name You know, it's true. I'm not sure
2: who. It's really, really true. And
3: not only the the curriculum available and the quality of it, but the culture over there. The culture is. Yeah, it's because it's such a big part of what makes Mississippi State special. I know we got great schools. You know, architecture, engineering. You go on and on about some of the stuff over there, but it is such a big part of the culture and the pride in our university. And I think that actually makes a big difference in what you get over there in getting education. I uh, got just ride over there my goodness. Yes, absolutely Toronto. positive. Yeah. I
4: like it cuz they plant a bunch of cool oaks all over campus. Yes, <laughs> That's
1: well, my favorite
3: All <laughs> they
4: part. have to do is google and 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 learn a little bit about dr.
2: Damaris. Yeah. and, and @missudearlab.com. Brons, so Strip is. Bronson Strickland and you guys it's just
5: impressive. And Bobby I want to jump back you're talking about exclusion cages outside of the food plot. Those, it's a difficult tool to do that way for a property management or a large area, but you can learn a lot about your forages and what the deer really like by putting up a 10 by 10 foot square Uh, fence, and just seeing what grows in there that doesn't grow outside of it. Okay,
2: well, let me me explain what I was thinking, and y'all tell
5: me if I'm wrong, but like, so
2: if a guy took an area the size of this table and fenced it off and put some uh, strawberry
4: bushes... And let the deer eat what grows outside of it. But
2: then, so the birds might disperse those seeds and the property might have a chance to have some more...
3: True. Good idea. I don't know, but you got to have a seed that'll do that and know. But yeah, theoretically, absolutely. People caged greenbrier before, hadn't they? And then that's why
1: you
4: got to do. uh, Japanese honey. That's that's a whole other study in business for us
3: because you want to think what are plants that you could reintroduce that could be um, browsed heavily and and survive. That's what you want, not just the best nutrition, because if. If you get a little strawberry bush going again and they wipe it out, what good have you done? So what could you reintroduce in that manner, Bobby? That's brilliant thinking. But what would you want to do? What what plant would you – turn to him in Mississippi State and say, what plant would you like it to be? And that's what we should try to figure out how to do and encourage. Hmm.
5: What would I say, Lanny? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't say kudzu, though, I bet.
3: (laughs) Oh, I bet we could get a couple of varieties (laughs) out of them. (laughs)
5: <laughs> oh mate, just a well, quick I, little story about, yeah, about why it depends in in it's in, irrelevant. The, in the upper coastal plain maple red maple is not a preferred forage at all but in a lower coastal plain it's a highly preferred forage mm, yep. because down there it's some of the best stuff that the deer could find up here it's just it's you know run of the mill hamburger mm-hmm. yep Toxie, what were you saying a few months ago? Something about a
4: deer's brain and stomach is more He's a connected slave to his
5: than
3: stomach. like I don't believe that was me. Well, it, I was thinking I was talking about bandy's uh, c- uh, brain and stomach being more.
4: It, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so interesting how their body can tell them what that's they not, need.
3: No, that's true. Better than
4: like so a human's brain. I yield to
3: him, but yeah, they. You know,
4: I just want to go eat. Uh, cheeseburgers from mcdonald's uh, but a deer's brain actually tells them you need this to eat more need. of this
3: your brain does too you just won't let it listen to <laughs> <laughs> i mean they, they want something they can digest yeah. obviously and utilize well, we've always
5: but, taught their selective browsers yeah, i've are always slaves
3: their listened to biologists right. saying that you know they crave what they're deficient in
5: i guess they true? have nutritional wisdom Ah, okay. That's the that's the, the claim phrase. Term there, mm-hmm. nutritional wisdom, and the, some of the things you, you know you hear about. Well, a food plot planting doesn't work in my area, whereas it does in another. Well, oh, we've of we've documented through our research that deer will select what they need, and if the uh, plant, if the property has a lot of a particular mineral, they're going to avoid that mineral in the food plot if they, the property doesn't have a lot of that particular mineral and it's rich in a particular forage, then they're going to hammer it on the food plot. Huh. So those deer are going to be making those decisions, not generally white-tailed deer do this, and that. they do, they have tendencies, but what do they need on that particular property?
2: It goes back to what Toxie said earlier, nature is so amazing. Yeah, You
5: know,
3: the wonder. It never. I, you have a podcast and you have someone like him that's so valuable to have on and you just feel like, going into the podcast that we're gonna knock out all this stuff, we're gonna learn so much, we're gonna really put we'll our arms around. This stuff yeah, we're gonna put a yeah. fence around all this and, yeah. and, and have it figured out. And, you know, in his wisdom and in our rambling we realize It depends. Yeah, it does depend. <laughs> and that's kind of the fun part of it because in living a life as a gamekeeper, it's never you're never done. Ever. No matter how much work you've done, no matter what you've learned, no matter what's going on. And don't get frustrated with with not getting there. My place isn't quite where I want it to be. I'm, you know, you get don't be frustrated. Be overjoyed at the work and living a life as a gamekeeper. Getting to do that kind of work, getting you know, caring about your place, keeping up with the data, mm-hmm. harvesting the doughs, eating the meat—all these things that fit together, you know. It's because we'll never get there and have it perfectly. But the point he's making, I believe, is to get everybody and get more and more people engaged in trying to get there. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. Wow. Good
2: times. Well, gosh, been, this has Let's been. Let's go really shoot good. some does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, we, we do need and to anyway. some bucks. Yeah, here yeah. you yeah, go. Yes, yeah, yeah, sir. Well, so Mike, do you have a question? You. This podcast was Mac's idea, so I want to make sure he
1: wow. has a blame to. Wow, Pro- uh, blame over there. Oh, he's getting his notes out. I do.
0: Oh, I, do I do have one question. He's
1: texting uh, over there. Yeah.
0: I've got a. I've got a random Go question
4: ahead. myself, and uh, this is kind of off Ren, topic, but random my middle name. Uh, yeah. I wanted to hear Steve's answer. Me and my buddies always talk about this scenario. Like, okay, say you're hunting over a big field one afternoon, and Shooting time comes. You didn't. You didn't shoot a deer, and you don't want to get out of your stand and scare all your deer. Away. Oh yeah. Mm. Uh, what uh, What do you do? Do you just get out of the stand and run the deer off? Do you make some kind of weird noise like a dog or what?
5: Man, that's a brilliant. Question, Dudley. I have no idea. You don't? Uh, what? Well, you could play Dudley's Christmas
4: Carol. I, uh, <laughs> from that. I've hey. got buddies that'll bark like a dog. I've got, yeah. uh, I, just, I, I uh, usually do, I usually throw a snort wheeze and I'll it, it usually kind of makes them pick their head up and a lot of them will just kind of.
1: Could, could you
5: give us an, a sample of yeah, that? Yeah, that's his snort wheeze. Uh, you want me to
4: give you my snort wheeze? Oh, yeah, Dudley. <laughs> All right. Something and like that. that. Something like and
3: that, that runs What out? happened to the snort? That was yeah. just a weed. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs>
5: that was good, Dudley. Uh, but it, seriously, you know, the, you don't want to uh, train them that you're there, but it's, there's no way they're not going to know that you're getting right. out of that stand. Yeah. And, yeah. and then walking out, I mean, they're going to know you're there, but the point is minimize your impact right. and, and don't go to the same stand Day after day after day, and right. wonder why you're not seeing. That's deer. probably
4: the right answer. Mm-hmm. Quit quit hunting big fields so much.
2: Well, I, you know, a lot of people that I know have a buddy, and they'll that buddy will come pick them up, or and then they'll go pick up another, and and, and try to run the deer out of the
4: field. So if right. a if a property, if the deer are used to vehicle. vehicles and stuff, that, that, yes. that's a good. I mean, if they're used
3: to, if they're not used to vehicle, you're just as yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, one thing it I've depends. learned. There's what spooks deer worse than seeing you is smelling mm-hmm. you. So it depends. That's I mean, there's nothing that will spook them human odor left laying around or whatever. So I, I I'd go back to not trying to shoot my does in because then you shot one. There's a big pile of blood. You're out there for 30 minutes after dark, dragging it out and doing all that. Maybe looking for it, stomping around. I would avoid that if you're worried about. A certain place being for a trophy deer.
2: So, Mac decided he doesn't have a question, but we're gonna. We always do. Uh, we kind of start wrapping up, and then we we do an Ask Dudley. So we got one today. We we got one. Doctor Steve, I'd love for you to stay with us, please, sure. if you would, to make sure Dudley's giving
5: the correct But me a track
2: before now. we leave this topic, there's one thing I wanted to say to guys that we're, we're talking about killing a lot of deer. And I, I see where people sometimes throw carcasses in creeks, mm. and we, we don't need to do that. And I want to – Lounge County, Mississippi has dumpsters all over the county where you can throw a deer carcass in. I don't know why more counties don't do that. It's a, it seems like a brilliant idea. But uh, so I, I just wanted to remind folks, hey, don't go throw Take it off a bridge stuff, in the right. middle of the night because right. that's just creating all kind of problems. Um. So, I'm off my little soapbox there. But so,
4: thank you, Mr. Know It All.
0: (laughs) Do do we have a a back? Would you please? uh. Hey, Dudley. How does an acorn crop on white oaks this year affect next year's crop? Are the acorns on a tree the same size each year? This year, I've been on a property in the river swamp and found white oaks with acorns the size of golf balls. If I plant them, will the tree grow? To have the same size acorns? Thanks, Dovezar.
4: Okay, so that's
0: Vandy Vandy Collins. That's a great question,
1: too. And
2: let me just say, right now while we're doing this, he's having heart surgery. Oh. So this is, uh, he had asked that question, and this gives him something to look forward to as soon as he gets out of heart surgery. He'll
4: be able to hear this next week. Well, Vandy, we love you. And, uh, this is kind of a tricky question because it's like three questions in one. It but, uh
3: yep.
4: <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> and uh, this is going to be, you know, just from some of my non-scientific uh, observation. data, yeah. Because uh, I do see a lot of acorns every year. Um, so uh, how does the acorn crop uh, on white oaks this year affect next year's crop? Um uh, you know, that's to me, that's really cyclical. Uh, there's individual oaks that drop more than others, uh, but I think he's kind of talking about like a bumper year where right, right. they're all good. Um, so usually when they have a really good year, the, the next year isn't that great. You know, so that answers that. Um, are the acorns on a tree the same size each year? Um he, again, individual trees. I'm, I'm thinking swamp white oak, because I mean swamp chestnut oak, because he mentioned a river bottom and white oaks. I've seen swamp chestnut oaks, indiv- individuals that have very small acorns. Yep. I've seen individual trees that have very large acorns. But on a, a year like this year where we had so much rainfall, um, yes, they on average will be a little bit larger than normal.
3: But right. you would also agree there is a fair amount of genetics involved in that acorn size too.
4: Absolutely. Well, know, it's just so like tomatoes. That's right. You know, you exactly. Got,
3: uh,
4: but, you know, a better boy tomato on a really good year, it'll have slightly bigger tomatoes. You know, yeah. I
3: found the one uh, hybrid that has a, it's bigger than a, god. they're just gigantic acorns. And even right. if that tree has three acres, they're gigantic. If it has a bumper crop, they're gigantic. So, you know, that's genetics.
4: Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see, if I plant them, will they grow into the same size acorns? And that one, uh, you know, these are open pollinated trees. You, you don't know what the other parent is because it, it you know, it was... Uh, Windblown. Windblown. Yeah. Pollen, tree sperm that just flew through the air right. and, and landed on that female flower. So... No, you uh, you know what half of the genetics is.
3: So you say yeah. you have a better chance. Probably right. so, but yeah. not anything certain at all. Not
4: even close. Right. Not not unless it's in a controlled environment. You know where you're, uh, and they call it true to type. Right. They don't really come back true to type every time, but you are definitely increasing the chance.
2: Yeah. So that's okay. it. Yeah. Good. Great stuff. Great question. Good. And Vandy, we hope uh, hope you're getting getting well. Sure. That's do. right. So, uh, look, uh, I'm going to look around the room. What did we learn today? We, uh, I, know, I know that we learned so much.
1: Well, uh, you never know it all, you know. I mean, it's, it's, and it depends. We, we, we learned that to, it depends. That's right.
2: <laughs> I learned Dudley cannot sing yeah. right right off the bat. I learned. I, don't, I don't, Bobby. My feelings hurt. I was actually. I thought he sang pretty
1: good. Of course, I'm not. A I good did too. Singer. Honestly, yeah, well, I, thought, okay. I learned that he could sing. Well, yeah, we, need we don't a, have a Bobby Dudley duet or anything. Not, not. Moment. I don't. Expect I owe him all him, that
4: though. to my high school choir instructor Robert E. Lee from Jackson Preparatory School. Nineteen
2: ninety four. Okay. I am not gonna say anything uh, no, as much no, as I would like to. No, so so. No, no. we're we're gonna wrap this one up. Doctor Demares, we appreciate you being here. We thank so much of you and Dr. Bronson Strickland. We all are always so helpful to us. We love having y'all over here. And guys can go listen to your podcast. It's called Dear University. Yes. yes.
3: Absolutely. Yep. Good stuff. I, I learned that you can never quit learning. That's right. In the smartest I mean I'm Again, I am probably the smartest deer university in the country. Okay, there's probably some others close to them, but not to get in that argument, but as smart as they are, they're continuing to learn all the time too. Mm-hmm. And so let's never stop learning no matter how much you, you, you know. Name it again. game. Yeah, Amen to yeah. that. Absolutely.
2: Name it again. game. All right, Mac, are we good as far as you? I got a thumbs up. We got Jack is the intern. Is he back? Did he he's, make it back? Jack. Wake up, Jack. He's so, there. All right, he's there, so. Won't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley.
1: Get us out of here, Matt.
2: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine.
4: And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt Podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuzz Strickland.